Take your Bibles and turn to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. When we finished chapter 1 of Daniel last week, we found that Daniel and three of his friends were in a very peculiar situation. Daniel and his friends were born into a class of Jewish nobility, uh, perhaps even Jewish royalty. In Jerusalem, they had very bright futures, but now Daniel and his friends have been taken captive, turned effectively into political hostages, which meant they were likely very young, probably no older than 15. Nebuchadnezzar, the great king of Babylon, has risen to the highest unchallenged power in the world. The day of the Babylonian Empire has dawned. All the kingdoms throughout the known world must come to terms with Nebuchadnezzar. And he's this very young king who uh, rules Babylon and has conquered them. And as I said, Daniel and his friends uh, are taken from a rebellious city, Jerusalem, a city that has not uh, been very uh, faithful in their submission to Nebuchadnezzar. And so they are made political hostages. Uh, with the effect being that Jerusalem should not rebel again. That doesn't work, by the way. Jerusalem does rebel again, and Nebuchadnezzar ends up wiping Jerusalem for the time being off the face of the map. Uh, he completely does away with them after a future rebellion. But in chapter 1, that hasn't happened yet, Daniel and his three friends, uh, who are young, who have every reason to be scared, uh, are brought to the great city of Babylon. And in Babylon... They could have ended up in any number of awful situations. Nebuchadnezzar could have simply kept them alive in prison. Their only value as hostages was that they remained alive. He could have sent them to work in mines or fields or worse conditions. Even as slaves, he could have done whatever he wanted with these guys. But in, instead, in chapter 1, Daniel and his friends are chosen for a special training program. Nebuchadnezzar thinks that it would be wise to assimilate some of these Jewish people, some of the best and the brightest from the Jewish captives, into a special class of people that already exists in Babylon. These were people who were capable of assisting the king with difficult decisions, with, with deep understandings, with, with the understanding of what the gods would have the king do. As participants in the training program, Daniel and his friends will be totally and wonderfully provided for by the king. They will eat from the king's table. They will not have to figure out a way to scrape and scrounge a living out for themselves in this new city, which they do not understand the language, cultures, or people. Instead, they will be royally provided for, so it's a pretty good deal. In being chosen for such a special program, they move from about the worst living situation you could find yourself in, a political hostage in a foreign land where you don't know anybody or anything, to a place of wonderful future prospects. It was from this class of people that the various leaders and governors were chosen throughout the Babylonian Empire. All they have to do is Assimilate. All they have to do is not, not rock the boat. All they have to do is fit in. Uh, but right away, Daniel and his friends do rock the boat. Now, they're not rude. They don't, they don't put on some big protest. They don't stage a rebellion. 
They don't behave badly. They don't throw a fit. But they decide at the outset that they will not eat the food associated with the worship of the various gods of Babylon. They will not become idolaters before their God. They will not worship idols. They will not turn away from the God of Israel. Well, uh, we covered this last week. God saves Daniel and his friends. He blesses them with great wisdom. He gives them favor in the eyes of the decision makers around them. They do very well in this three-year training program, which is how chapter 1 concludes, which brings us this morning to chapter 2. Now, this is going to be a two-part sermon series, so nobody panic 20 minutes in when we're not, we're not getting uh, to the end. Uh, we're not doing all of chapter 2 today. We're only doing part of chapter 2. The sermon itself will have three sections, of which I will point out along the way. Uh, part 1 of the sermon, I'll call it the proposal. The proposal. In every good story, there is something to be gained and something to be lost. And we see a proposal here. Verse 1, in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was so troubled that his, slept, that his sleep left him. Dreams. Dreams. Now we're going to find out very quickly that these were not just any kind of dreams because most of our dreams, if we're being honest, are, are probably silly, you know. Uh, but what's actually happening is that Nebuchadnezzar is having the same dream over and over again. I have dreams sometime. I'll, I'll tell you that, that as a little child, I had one time in my life when I had a recurring dream over and over again. I was small. It was frightening. I remember praying about this because it was a struggle to sleep. I would continue to have this dream. It was the first real weakness that I remember as an 8, 9, 10-year-old talking to my mother about because I didn't know what to do. I knew that I kept going to sleep, kept having this dream. And I remember praying with my mother who sat down beside the bed and who prayed with me and uh, specifically for this. And I didn't have those dreams ever again from that point on. And again, I'm not suggesting that's a pattern for how to deal with all of your bad dreams and they'll instantly go away if you're afflicted by such things. But whatever God was doing in my life at that age, he, showing me who he was, showing me the power of, of prayer, showing me his faithfulness. Uh, I had an experience like this as a small child, but it's not a common thing. I mean, this is not a, a, a regular thing. Nebuchadnezzar is having a dream over and over and over again. It will become clear from the rest of the chapter that this dream is important. It had, it had some meaning to it. It was not the normal nonsense that happens when you fall asleep at night and your minds do whatever it is that they do. You know what I'm talking about. So have, do you talk to people about your dreams? I bet you don't. Probably not, right? If you have dreams, if you remember them, they're probably strange, you know? You know, I was at work and uh, for some reason my uncle was there. I don't know why. And, and uh, we were chasing these rabbits that we had to catch. I mean, you know, they're, they're out there. I don't know why we had to catch them, but that, you know, dreams are, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> we don't talk about them a lot. Whatever we have, we kind of just chuckle and move on, how, however they are. But, but, but Nebuchadnezzar's dream is not, is not like that. This dream was clear. It was recurring, and it was alarming. Uh, for reasons we'll discover next week. Also take note here, it says, his sleep left him. I take this to mean that when he went to bed at night 
And he had this dream. He would wake up, and night after night after night of this happening, he was so disturbed by it that he couldn't get back to sleep. Over and over again, this would happen. His sleep left him. We need sleep. Nebuchadnezzar can't. He is grasping for answers here in chapter 2. Now Nebuchadnezzar is going to do something very strange to us. But if you're a king and you have wise men and people that you employ, you know, and you're in a desperate situation, it says in verse 2, then the king gave the command to all the magicians. Call the magicians. Call the astrologers, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans to tell the king his dreams. So they came and they stood before the king. I could go into the word definitions of all of these guys, and there would be some value in that, I suppose, but these are the people of the Babylonian occult. That's who this is. Every one of them. You can look at the words behind every one of these English translations you see on the page. It's occult stuff. I mean, it's people who are using styluses to engrave symbols and people who are looking at the stars to interpret. We still have stuff like this today. There are still people who look to the occult, uh, who look to those who proclaim you know, some, some fascination, some, some ability to interpret uh, dark things or mystical things, to tell them their dream, to tell them their future. These are, are, are people who, who look to horoscopes on a regular basis, who, who, who want to hear from the astrologers of our day and age. Don't do this stuff, please. Don't do this stuff, Christians. If you are a child of the living God, do not degrade yourself like that. Do not degrade the name of God who holds your life in His hands. Who tells you to trust him? Do not degrade the name of God like that. Be holy. Be separate from all that stuff. Verse 3 says, the king said to these guys, I have had a dream and my spirit is anxious to know the dream. Then the Chaldean spoke to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will give the interpretation. Easy enough. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, My decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and its interpretation, you shall be cut in pieces and your houses shall be made an ash heap. However, if you tell the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts, rewards, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its interpretation. This is the proposal. Tell me the dream and be greatly rewarded. And by the way, I mean, if you're the king of Babylon, you are in position to greatly reward someone. That's a pretty good thing. I, you know, I've gotten a few awards in my life. Nothing from someone like the king of an empire, right? So tell me the dream, guys, and there will be a great reward. But fail to tell me the dream and death. Something to gain, something to lose. This shows just how desperate Nebuchadnezzar is for answers. It's going to be made clear in the following verses. The king is apparently no fan of these people to begin with. He doesn't seem to trust them. It's implied that he is inclined to believe they are frauds. So why does he call them to help with the dream? Well, he is he's desperate. I'm not trying to oversimplify this, but you've got to think for a minute about the situation. If you've ever had a baby, you know that if you are not allowed to sleep, your mind can go to some dark places. And, and, and Nebuchadnezzar can't just take a few weeks off work. He is, he is a king. He needs his faculties about him, and the man can't sleep. 
I can imagine everything that's going along with that. Your head is hurting. You're struggling to fall. I mean, he is supposed to be a king, and he, he can't sleep. Isn't it amazing? God does not need an army to bring Nebuchadnezzar to his knees, does he? He doesn't need a lightning bolt from heaven or anything like that. All he needs to do is just give him a dream and trouble his spirit, and he can't sleep. And the greatest man in the world is brought crumbling. How fragile we all are when you get down to it. So he has a proposal. Tell me the dream, reward. Don't tell me the dream, die. We have ourselves a high-stakes situation here. Part one, the proposal. Part two, we'll call the struggle. The struggle. Now, if you're a human being and you're presented with a proposal like this, you're going to struggle with it. Let's see, how, let's see how, they, they, how they do here. Verse 7. They answered again and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will give its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know for certain that you would gain time because you see that my decision is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me, there is only one decree for you. For you have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can give me its interpretation. <laughs> the wise men, see, at this point, are starting to panic. And again, for the second time, they try to change the rules of the arrangement. You tell us the dream, and we'll give you the meaning, right? Because how hard really is it to come up with a meaning? I mean, you tell me what, what you saw, what happened, and I'll come up with something. I mean, I, you know, I, if my life's on the line, you know, I'm not going to invest in whatever I come up with, but I'll come up with something, you know. Uh, but it is good to be the king, and it is not so good to be a wise man right now, and Nebuchadnezzar is not going to change the rules. And in fact, now, his suspicions about these guys, that they are actually frauds, that they actually can't talk to the gods or read the stars or channel the underworld. His suspicions appear to be confirmed. And in his heart, he's saying, I knew it. He even says in the text, I know for certain. You're just stalling, guys. And if you don't tell me the dream, I'm going to kill every one of you. That's Nebuchadnezzar. <laughs> because you have conspired. You've got to understand the context here. You have conspired to lie to me and to my father, by the way. These are the same wise men who counseled all of Nebuchadnezzar's life. His father, the great Nabal Pelasser. And who knows what he witnessed as a young man, the counsel that his father leaned on these men to provide, and the ups and downs of that. He's saying, you have conspired to lie, to pretend to be wise. You pretend to be mouthpieces of the gods, when the truth is, you aren't any closer to the gods than the next guy. And you have been getting paid for this. You've been treated with a life of luxury as wise. You're not out there scrapping in the dust for a living. And you would, you would be telling me this stuff till kingdom come, till the times change, you'd carry on lying to me. Now, I don't like anybody calling me a liar, but when a king calls you a liar to your face, you've got a real problem. These guys have been living the, the good life on their reputations as wise men. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to put an end to the gravy train for these guys. Verse 10, the Chaldeans answered the king and said, there is not a man on earth who can tell the king's 
matter. Well, we are dropping all pretense now, aren't we? Um, we're getting really honest here. The gloves are off. Uh, diplomacy is out the window. There is not a man on earth who can tell the king's matter. Therefore, no king, lord, or ruler has ever asked such things of any magician, astrologer, or Chaldean. It is a difficult, literally impossible thing that the king requests. And there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. And here we have it, folks. All the cards are on the table. We cannot do it, man. No one can do it. The request is unreasonable, even unjust, because, verse 11, there is no other who can tell it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Ooh, the stage is now set. Verse 12, for this reason the king was angry and very furious. I don't know what his face looked like, what he said, what he did, but when you get two descriptions of the exact same emotion, you know the king was angry and very furious. He didn't like being told that this was unjust and unfair, and he is mad. And he gave the command to destroy all the wise men of Babylon. So the decree went out. They began killing the wise men. And they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Remember, that's the class that Daniel is in now, this training program. Then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree from the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. So Daniel went in and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now a couple of things. First, when it says they begin killing the wise men, that can be understood to mean they began the process of killing them and, and the rounding up of all these guys is starting here. And that's what we see in verse 14. Arioch, captain of the king's guard, goes to arrest Daniel and his friends. They're rounding them up. These guys, Daniel and his friends, seem oblivious to the whole scenario. you got to remember, they have either just completed the training program or are still in the final stages of the training program. They are the newbies to the special class of wise men. They are on the bottom of the totem pole. They're not showing up before the king to hear about all the king's troubles yet. They, this is news to them. Ariak's got to tell them what's going on. When Daniel finds out, he petitions the king. Now, probably not face-to-face, -face, but through Arioch, most likely, for some time. He says, look, we just found out about this today. Give us a little, a little time here. And he's granted a little time. I would not presume that he was given very much time, seeing how Nebuchadnezzar is reacting to everybody else involved. But he's given a little time. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house, and he made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. We met those guys in chapter 1 that they might seek mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret, so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now I told you this part of the sermon was called the struggle. We have seen how the wise men of Babylon struggle with this proposal. What do they do? Well, they try to negotiate their way out of this. They, they don't go to their gods. There is no help to be found there. 
They try to arbitrate with Nebuchadnezzar a change to the arrangement. That's how they, that's how they go about this. They're in, a, they're in a tough spot. That's how they, they struggle with this by trying to arbitrate a solution with the person who they're at odds with. But Daniel doesn't say to Ariok, this isn't fair. He doesn't tell Ariok, hey, hey man, uh, we are just trainees in this whole thing here. You know, this doesn't seem... <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he doesn't take that, that tact. Instead, what does Daniel do? He gathers his friends and they pray. They pray. Daniel and his friends understand what it means to live by faith. Their futures, their hopes, and their dreams, their lives were not actually in the hands of the king or the king's captains or the wise men of Babylon. Their lives were in the hands of the Lord God of Israel. Was this an impossible task? For flesh and blood, yes, but not for the Lord God of Israel. They go to the Lord in prayer. He will save them or he will not. Either way, it's up to him. It's not up to Nebuchadnezzar. Remember that when we get to chapter 3. You see the same heart there. God will save them or he won't, but it's not up to Nebuchadnezzar. There is great peace in knowing this as a believer. Listen to me now. There is no need to panic in this life. Not for the believer. Our lives are not in the hands of the storm at sea. You remember when there was a storm at sea and Jesus is with his disciples, right? And they're panicking because apparently they think that the Lord has called them to follow Jesus and then is going to kill them in the, in the sea, right? And you remember what Jesus says to them? O ye of little faith, I mean, I can, I can see Jesus in that boat, at least. I don't know if it was what he said or what he sounded like, but my impression is, come on, guys. I mean, what? God has not brought you here for this. Our lives are not in the hands of the governments. Our lives are not in the hands of our friends, hoping to, that they'll be faithful to us, hoping that they won't let us down. Our lives are not in the hands of our enemies, of those who would see us fail. Our lives are not in the hands of the bankers and those who manipulate and pull strings on money and finances and jobs and economic stuff. Our lives are not in the hands of customers who are fickle and who don't understand. Our lives are not in the hands of managers or bosses and employers. They're not in the hands of mothers and fathers. They're not in the hands of husbands and wives. Our lives are in the hands of the living God. We are called to live by faith. Have a little faith. There is no need for God's people to panic in this world. Jesus tells his disciples bluntly and plainly, in this world you will have trouble. And that's true. We know that to be true. But he tells his disciples, I will never leave you nor forsake you. A proverb says, the lot, the dice, you know, the random things that people throw to make decisions in life, the lot is cast in the lap of the Lord. It seems random to everyone else. But God knows exactly where the chips fall. 
before the dice is cast. There is no random with God. Daniel and his friends know what they're doing. When they pray, they are seeking mercy, it says, from the God of heaven. Verse 18, that they might, that they might seek the mercies of the God of heaven. They don't deserve God's help. You understand that? If God was going to help them, it would be mercy. It would be the Lord God of heaven having pity, showing mercy on these four young sinners, these four young men who simply trust Him. It's mercy. Daniel and his friends, I presume, knew the Ten Commandments. Do you know the Ten Commandments? If you don't, it's worth your time and study. In Exodus chapter 20, you might have heard of the Second Commandment. And you may know it in a summary form of you shall have no graven images, thou shalt not have any idols. You may know a summary version of the second commandment. But here is the full commandment. Listen to this. This is Exodus 20 verses 4 through 6. Now the first part will sound familiar. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Daniel and his friends are presiding in a land of idols in Babylon. And their fate is now tied up with the fate of these idol-worshipping wise men of Babylon. But they know our God who describes himself as showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. It is a good thing when the one who gives the law describes himself as merciful to those trying to keep the law. So they ask for time to seek the mercies of God from heaven. This is how Daniel struggles with Nebuchadnezzar's proposal in contrast to how the wise men of Babylon struggle with Nebuchadnezzar's proposal. Daniel and his friends go to the living God because he alone can save them. The wise men try to negotiate. They know of no God that can help. Such is the tragedy of the unbeliever who knows no God who can save. Part three Final section, the glory belongs to the Lord. The glory belongs to the Lord. Daniel is not the hero of our story. The Lord God of Israel is the hero. The Lord God of Israel saves. Do not get the final part wrong. Verse 19. Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. So Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, now we're going to get a glimpse of his, of his blessing, God. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever. For wisdom and might are His, and He changes the times and the seasons. He removes kings and raises them up. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness. And the light dwells with him. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you for you have made known to us the king's demand. Daniel gets his answer and he immediately blesses God. 
He immediately redirects glory to God. All of Daniel's praise in these verses can be summarized in two simple theological points that every Christian should know. One, God is omnipotent. Which means God is all-powerful. He changes times, seasons, kings, Daniel says. He is mighty. Power lies with Him. Two, God is omniscient. Which means all-knowing. Daniel says, He gives wisdom, knowledge, reveals secrets, and He knows what is in the dark. He alone makes what is in the darkness come to light. Men and women look into the uncertainties of their lives all the time, and they wonder, will the stock go up or down? Will this person do this or that? Will I be healthy or sick? Will I be successful or not? Will the law change here? Will it remain the same? Will my children be okay? And all of these questions and thousands more like them are like peering down a dimly lit corridor, staring into the darkness, uncertain, uncertain, uncertain. God knows what is in the darkness and He gives understanding to those whom He wishes. Look here how Daniel, who alone, Daniel alone was given the meaning of the dream, is quick to credit his friends who prayed with him. He says, you have made known to me, God, you have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. Let those who receive from the Lord bountifully share with those who love and prayed with them. For mercy is not earned. If it were earned, it would be a wage, not mercy. It would be a payment, but not mercy. Mercy is given by God to the undeserving. So let him who receives be gracious to all who love the Lord and call upon his name. Verse 24. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Take me before the king, and I will tell the king the interpretation. Then Arioch quickly brought Daniel before the king and said thus to him. Now you'll notice Arioch is not interested in giving glory to anybody else. I have found a man of the captives of Judah who will make known to the king the interpretation. Okay. <laughs> I mean, you went to kill him, in fairness, but... Okay, verse 26. The king answered and said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream which I have seen and its interpretation? Here we go. Here we go. Daniel answered in the presence of the king and said, The secret which the king has demanded, the wise men the astrologers, the magicians, and the soothsayers cannot declare to the king. But there is a God in heaven. <laughs> you know, Andy lost it over and over again trying to read through that scripture this morning. This is where I lose it. There is a God in heaven. Christians, that is our message to a world that doesn't know what to do with evil, to a world that doesn't know how to cope with failure, to a world searching for meaning and purpose and value in this life. There is a God in heaven. Nebuchadnezzar, the secret thing which you are searching for, the thing that is keeping you up night after night, the thing which you have to settle 
for your own sanity in order to have peace. The wise men, the astrologers, the magicians, the politicians, the culture warriors, the self-help experts of the world, the therapists, the professors, the Oprahs, and the Osteens cannot help you with. But there is a God in heaven. (laughs) The passage we read this morning in Isaiah 46, God says, I am God, there is no other. I am God, there is none like me. Nebuchadnezzar is learning that in Daniel 2. There is a God in heaven who Isaiah 46 says can declare the end from the beginning. There is a God in heaven who not only knows the future but has your very life in the palm of his hands. You can't sleep at night. Let me tell you who's responsible for that. There is a God in heaven who declares my counsel shall stand Isaiah 46.10, and I will do all my pleasure. Verse 28, but there's a God in heaven who reveals secrets, and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head upon your bed were these. As for you, O king, thoughts came to your mind while on your bed about what would come to pass after this. We get the context. He knows his dream is important because he sees it as a divine answer to a question he is deeply struggling with. This is a young man. This is a king who has suddenly come into power and he is trying to understand what is going to happen. I see this great kingdom. What is going to come of it? And as he's struggling with that, this dream and he cannot understand it and he cannot put it out of his mind and he's up every night with it and Daniel tells him what all the others couldn't. While you were laying on your bed, your heart, your mind began to wonder, verse 29, what would come to pass after this? And he who reveals secrets has made known to you what will be. But as for me, this secret has not been revealed to me because I have more wisdom than anyone living. But for our sakes, who make known the interpretation to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your heart. Two reasons. Number one, what God has to say in this dream is important, and you need to know it. Number two, God gave it to me to save our lives. (laughs) So, part three of the sermon, the glory belongs to God. Not to Daniel, not to his friends, certainly not to any of these other characters running around Babylon. The glory belongs to the Lord. He is the hero. Do you give glory and honor to God in your life? Do you know the God of heaven? If you're a Christian, if you're here worshiping the Lord in spirit and truth this morning, your answer must be yes. If you are not a Christian, there is only one God and there is only one way to know him and there's only one way to have true glory. That's found in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 says that the glory of God is revealed in the face of Jesus Christ. This is why we sing the song. I hope we close our service with it. I think we're going to. It was a request. To God be the glory, great things he has done.
And the song brings into focus what God has done to save people. To save people. It was Jesus that went to the cross to pay for our sins. You can't make up for it. You can't do enough right to blot out the wrong. It was Jesus who rose from the grave to make eternal life possible for us. He is the first fruits of the resurrection of God. We are all just hoping to follow. It is Jesus who will return to this world and set up the very kingdom that Andy was reading about this morning in his text. And if you want to know more about that, you have to come back next week. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, you alone can look into the darkness and illuminate it with light. And you have caused the face of Jesus Christ to shine the light of God upon our hearts as Paul testifies in 2 Corinthians 4. And as he says there, the world is blind to your glory. But you have brought light to sinners who are perishing through the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, Father, empower us to live lives worthy of the gospel. Help us to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to you. Lives which are reasonable lives of service. I thank you for my brothers and sisters in Christ here who hold me accountable, who love me, who pray for me. Help us to be faithful to one another in prayer as Daniel and his friends are. Help us to go to you in prayer. Help us to bathe our lives in prayer. Help us to seek mercies from you. Help us to seek out fellowship in the body, your church here. Help us to give of ourselves, of our time, of our energy. Help us to humble ourselves before you that we might know your pleasure, we might experience your glory. It's in Jesus' name that I pray, amen.